Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a host of this Explaining Ukraine podcast. And today we'll be talking about Ukrainian books, Ukrainian culture, and why Ukraine can be awesome. And I'm very glad to have our guest, a famous Ukrainian book publisher, Dana Pavlichko, director of book publishing house Osnovy Publisher. Hello, Dana. Hi, nice to talk to you today. Thanks so much for joining us. The famous one of the famous projects of Osnovy Publishing is a series Awesome Ukraine. So my first question, can Ukraine really be awesome? You know, sometimes I think Ukraine's awesome, sometimes I think it's horrible. I think why we do this book, I think why it's special is because we try to see the odd in in Ukraine. And I think it's the odd that is interesting. You know, the strange, the weird is 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 what I like about this place. When you say about the strange things, do you think that are coming from Ukrainian specific mentality, from uh, Soviet, post-Soviet culture, from what sources? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's part of our history, the way we have developed, you know, as a country, as a nation, I think is what what makes this place, you know, interesting. If you look at architecture, for example, if you wander around any Ukrainian city, you see architecture that is from the 19th century, you see Soviet architecture, that's quite interesting. You see modern contemporary architecture some of it is awful but it's also part of our life right now i think we are an interesting amalgamation of very different things but your series awesome ukraine you also have series about specific cities it shows or rather i would say it shows how ukraine is modern how it is it can be fashionable how it also reappropriates its past it may it, it is an attempt also to make its past modern or or creative or fashion like isn't it yeah i think it's true but i also we look at different parts of the past because sometimes it's you know ukrainians like to see only part of its past and then forget about the other past you know for example we enjoy about speaking about you know tripilla or our cossack past or you know but we don't really like talking about the soviet past in terms of art or architecture for example so we try to look at things that people don't look at and we try to see ukraine with a foreign eye You are talking about the Soviet past and, and uh, you have a book about Soviet modernism, brutalism. I guess this is also something something that Ukrainians probably don't recognize and maybe some, some of the Ukrainians don't recognize and don't pay attention to it. Sometimes it looks really ugly, the Soviet architecture, but you are trying to show it as interesting. Why it is interesting? I think a lot of, a lot of what we think is beautiful is, you know, is something that you can see all over the world. Like Ukrainians are very proud, for example, of our nature and there's better nature, you know, in places, certainly. But I think it's it's this, you know, if we talk about the Soviet period, you know, that's why we, we incorporated it in awesome books and we have the book on the Soviet Ukrainian modernism, brutalism is what makes Ukraine unique. Not many places around the world have such 
strange, uh, beautiful, definitely, I would say, structures, you know, and this is some, some, these structures are what bring foreigners to Ukraine, for example. But indeed, when I talk to foreigners, I always often notice that uh, what they find interesting sometimes I don't find interesting and vice versa. But Ukraine is, is trying, well, it was trying in the, in the past few years go through a so-called decommunization process, which is very ambiguous, of course, because I think all of us understand that uh, the Soviet communism brought um, so many tragedies, but it would be probably not very right to erase this past totally. So what is the approach to this Soviet past, in your opinion? I think that when you talk about art and uh, architecture and sculpture and monumental art, it's obscene to destroy it in the name of decommunization. Because what we should do is study, we should discuss, we should create dialogue, And if we erase part of our history, then we won't remember it, we won't know it. And uh, that is why part of our work is, is studying the 20th century, you know, is, is creating this, this dialogue. And uh, a lot of art, a lot of Soviet Ukrainian art was actually, you know, very subtly, you know, against the Soviet Union. So it's, it's very ironic then if, that... A few years ago, this art, you know, could have been destroyed. Well, and frankly, stuff, you know, art is being destroyed. Buildings, monuments, mosaics are being destroyed every day just by sheer uh, negligence. Do you think we should, uh, Ukrainians should apply any moral criteria for the Soviet art? Meaning that, okay, we should... Uh, evaluate not only the aesthetic uh, qualities of the work, but also ethic qualities of the work, meaning that if this particular object praises, for example, people, the communist regime, the repressions, whatever, then we should apply this moral moral attitude. Or you think we, we should only focus on this aesthetic element? You know, I think that we shouldn't create committees that evaluate moral morality of, of art. You know, I think that's preposterous. I think we have respected art historians who we should listen to and they say, let's protect these buildings, let's protect these mosaics, let's protect these phenomenal works of art. Let's, let's study this, let's leave this for the future generations and let's make this a tourist magnet for people from around the world. I think this is definitely what we should do. And... Um, I think that um, you know evaluating the the, the moral scope of of a, of a of a building is is definitely not something that the government should do. You have a publication, uh, Ukrainian Soviet Mosaics, if I'm not mistaken, and I often, we recently talked with Volodymyr Sheiko, the director of Ukrainian Institute, for example, about this uh, idea, this initiative to project these mosaics in Vienna, for example, on, on buildings, create some very interesting visual project out of that. So do you think these Soviet mosaics can really uh, bring a lot of material for more interest, well, I would say for modern uh, art, 
for contemporary art? For sure. I think when we tell people of the world what is Ukraine, we should definitely, you know, talk about the mosaics. They are something totally unique. Not many countries in the around the world have have something similar. It's it's also something that people can understand. And this is just something super unique. Fortunately, after the book, there was much more interest towards the mosaics. So a lot of people are more, more keen to learn about them. But unfortunately, yet again, they are being destroyed because of negligence, because people don't understand the value and because we don't have, unfortunately, the government saving, saving these mosaics. I just wonder whether the art historians uh, try to be true to build a parallel, for example, between Byzantine mosaics and all this, you know, religious tradition of mosaics that came through from Byzantine to uh, ancient medieval Rus in Ukraine and kind of these Soviet mosaics. It would be interesting to study. They do make this parallel, and this is a parallel that is obvious to art historians from around the world. So when they see a story about Ukrainian mosaics, they can immediately uh, place us in the context of world history. So this is another reason why it's so valuable to, to do this. Another topic I would like to uh, to focus upon, uh, your recent book about railroad ladies, the the photo book, right, if I'm not mistaken, so showing the, the ladies working uh, throughout Ukrainian railroad and trying to uh, make homes out of those maybe not so, so cozy places in which they need to stay. Why it is interesting for you? Well, a couple of years ago, we started a transition to making books on art and photography and gastronomy. And we were talking with Sasha Maslov, who's the author of, of this photography book. And he's a Ukrainian-American who lives in New York. He's, he's you know, a very famous photographer. A while ago about this project, and this is something that's very us, This is something that studies Ukraine, modern-day Ukraine. This is something that looks at a phenomenon that we in Ukraine don't appreciate, you know. And, you know, we see these ladies, we've been on trains, we, we, we know the way they look, how they live, but we never actually pay attention. So the beauty of Sasha is that he, he spotted this interesting, this phenomenon And he made a project about it. And this is something yet again that is interesting to an international audience about Ukraine. Am I right that your your strategy or your angle is to defamiliarize things, for example? Well, you, you mentioned that those ladies are very familiar and basically uh, ordinary for Ukrainians, but they're not ordinary for a foreign eye. And, and what you're trying to say is to uh, say to Ukrainians as well that, look, there is some interesting things around you that you don't pay attention to. Exactly. This is exactly our angle because there's so much wonderful, interesting context in Ukraine, like the railroad ladies and Sasha captured them magnificently. You know, the project, the photo project itself won already many awards internationally, but we don't appreciate them. What we appreciate often in Ukraine is, is the banal, you know, something very banal, 
And we want to see this something special that many people don't think is special. And I've seen that indeed this project had a, a big acclaim in international media. I've seen publications in Washington Post, in New York Times, in The Guardian, in, in, in other newspapers. So congratulations on that. Another topic which is very interesting is your angle, maybe it's a series of projects which you call Chic, the balcony chic, then orthodox chic, when you also show these bizarre things, bizarre for a foreign audience, for example, these attempts to create new balconies uh, and, and very Soviet, post-Soviet style because Ukrainians didn't have much space in their apartments during Soviet Union. And they tried to enlarge this space a little by little through creating balconies. Yeah, so the first project, it's, you know, it's sort of a series, was Balcony Chic about makeshift balconies. Now it's actually an upcoming documentary called Enter Through the Balcony. They study the the topic as well. Now we have an upcoming photography book, Orthodox Chic, about orthodox contemporary architecture across, you know, Ukrainian cities. And often it's kind of also makeshift churches, you know, odd churches, churches where they're not supposed to be. So it's a study of the urban reality we live in. Because yet again, we like to, trans some Ukrainians, let's say, like to translate into the world an image of Ukraine as, as beautiful, with beautiful churches and perfect buildings. But in fact, most of our cities are, you know, kind of weird concrete jungles. And sometimes you can see new high rises and right next to a huge high rise you see a tiny makeshift church and it looks very very strange very odd and and phenomenal and interesting and and this is this is yet again another topic that we think is very interesting but you call it chic but when i look at those pictures i sometimes say to myself that it's rather kitsch Oh, it's rather something, you know, on on the brink, on the between ugly and weird. Why you call it chic? Because ugly and weird is chic. It's very often it is what is the that's what's hot in art and fashion. And if you look at, you know, the really progressive things, even in fashion, like if you look at you know, the stylings of Balenciaga, I mean they they could easily be you know, something from one of these churches or buildings, you know. So so this is something that's just natural to the urban environment of Ukraine. And it can look quite ugly, but in fact, it's it's phenomenal and it could be beautiful and it's very forward, you know. It's, it's forward without realizing it's very forward. What would you say if I use uh, the term exotic? So you try to show Ukraine a little bit exotic for a foreign eye. I don't like the term exotic because I wouldn't like the colonialist perspective. And maybe that is not what is meant to evoke in my mind by using the term exotic, but that's how I feel. And I don't think we are. I think we are cool and interesting in these aspects. And it's unique. And this is also something that people who are doing progressive things in art, in culture, in fashion, and photography around the world, 
you know, this is what they feel is is unique as well. So we're just doing something other people are doing and we're uniting the dots. That's very interesting because it is precisely, I use this term exotic, understanding uh, the colonial uh, some metaphor around it. Why I'm asking? Because sometimes it seems that when we are trying to show Ukraine as weird, we are making it a little bit different, too different to a foreign eye, whereas it is also important to show, in my opinion, that Ukrainians are, well, basically not very different from other people in terms of their humanity, their uh, their attitude to life, etc. So what is what is this relation between weird and uh, I would say cosmopolitan and universal. I think if you look at kids in Ukraine, if you look at really young kids, like in their 20s, they are the type of things they're doing, the fashion they're wearing. I mean, they're very forward. They're part of the world, you know. I think I myself, I'm already not in touch with what's happening, you know, with what's cool. And I think Ukraine is cool, I think we have that uniqueness and it's not meant to shock. It's something we have, but I think it's it's the kids that will will make it happen, you know, which will popularize it more. You also have a publication, Awesome Digital Ukraine, when you're talking about Ukrainian digital well breakthroughs, the, the, the good people, IT people who are working here and, and who make Ukraine a very progressive country. Do you see this, I mean, part of the people who are very highly educated and who are really moving Ukraine forward? Or is it exaggeration and this is a tiny minority unable to change anything? I think the IT, well, we did a book about it because it is a great, interesting topic about Ukraine. Ukraine does have historically a very powerful, booming IT sector, and it is booming. It is, you know, fantastic, and it would be great if even more Ukrainians knew about this. So, you know, it's definitely something to be proud of. I cannot escape asking questions about the book industry because you're representing one of the famous, the most famous Ukrainian publishing house. And it is active, I think, from the 90s. It was founded by your mother, Solomia Pavlichko, who is also a famous Ukrainian literary critic and I would say one of the biggest stars of Ukrainian intellectual scene. But how do you estimate the Ukrainian book space right now? Is it booming? Is it developing? Is it stagnating? What is your feeling? Well, first of all, I would like to make a point that we, Osnova right now, works in a very tiny niche. So we we do essentially arts-oriented books or we do books with, you know, really fantastic design and, and very high-quality printing. And it's, it's a very sl- tiny sliver of the market. And we've transitioned from doing academic books, nonfiction books, fiction books, classics. And I was just looking at data yesterday on the book industry, and I think that currently... It seems that the book market is booming, but in fact, in the last two years, I think it's the growth is is very small, maybe one percent. It's a very tough market. It's around three, four hundred million euros, the size of the market, which is very small, especially for foreign listeners. It's an weird market because we essentially don't have serious distribution. So publishers have to sell their books themselves, which means they have to sell to bookstores themselves and sell online themselves. And 
when I spoke to publishers around the world, very often they don't deal with sales. You know, they give it, they give their books to a distributor and the distributor sells them. So essentially for many publishers here, you have to know sales and marketing and, you know, it's, it's, it's quite complex. The government doesn't take any role in, in, you know, in developing the publisher sphere. It's tough for bookstores. It's book uh, libraries don't buy books. It's a tough market. It's a tough market with very, very small margins. It's a tough business. But at the same time, if you go to a book fairs, famous book fairs, the Lviv Publishing Fair, then uh, Knishkovy Arsenal, the book arsenal, then there are some other formats as well in Zaporizhia, for example, you see lots of people, you see crowds of people. So, And, and when you enter these exhibitions, you have an impression, wow, it, it is huge. It is no less people than, for example, on any like French book fair, Salon du Livre or whatever. Crowd does not a book business make. It's great to see crowds, people are coming out, but these crowds don't translate into serious sales and they don't translate into growth. And I can tell you this as someone who runs this business for the last 10 years and uh, I know the data, I know the sales. It's a it's a very, very tough business. I mean, frankly, we, we have many areas of the publishing business are even missing. For example, we don't have comic books or graphic novels. Uh, photography, arts publications are virtually non-existent in Ukraine because it's a very, very small market. So, I mean, it's great that people go to these events and it's wonderful that new events are popping up like the one in Dnipro. There's a, a book fair in Dnipro since two years ago. But this is the reality of the publishing business in Ukraine. How do you explain it? Can we explain it by the fact that people actually don't read that much in Ukrainian, that uh, they still have a habit of uh, reading in Russian? On the contrary, we don't have so many publishing houses publishing in Russian. And, uh, well, usually in the 90s, in the 2000, people used to buy lots of books from Russia. Now I think it is a little, little bit less, but how you explain these problems of the market? After the Soviet Union, the book industry was essentially decimated, so it virtually died. And uh, because of, you know, the internet developed, so people started downloading more for free. So essentially reading, but buying less. We didn't have a sustainable system of libraries buying books, universities buying books, and corruption, a lack of development into culture from the government. So these are all causes why people don't read, number one, and people don't buy books. So people don't have the necessity to buy books. People will buy anything else first but books. They would buy cosmetics. They will go to the cinema. They will have other forms of entertainment and they won't buy books. And people don't read. People don't find reading, uh, you know, a valuable habit. This is a bit a gloomy picture, but I think it is subjective. What do you say about the public policy? Because there is huge corruption in the 90s, in the 2000s. We, we know about that, but there are some positive changes. We have a new institution, Ukrainian Book Institute, who is struggling against bureaucracy, but is moving forward. Is there any light 
in the end of the tunnel that you see? I don't want to bum our audience out. I think there's stuff happening. I mean, we're doing interesting books, so, you know, that's something good. Other publishers are doing great things, so that's great. But I think, yes, there were positive changes in the last couple of years. The Book Institute in Ukraine is doing something. The way the program of buying books to the libraries that they still manage, I think, is preposterous. I think the ministry cannot manage purchasing of books for Ukrainian libraries. It's a very Soviet top-down approach. Budgets should not be spent that way. But we also have fantastic new institution that is supporting books. For example, uh, the Ukrainian Cultural Foundation is supporting book publishing. But we need a lot of, we need public policy decisions on a national level and on a local level. We need support for bookstores. We need libraries across the country buying books. We need programs that make reading fashionable and cool. We need a lot of policy aspects. We need a lot of policy, actually. But also, let's not forget that policy isn't a word that is... It's not a popular word in for Ukrainian political elites. The problem maybe is that the word policy in Ukrainian and the word politics is the same word. That's one of the problems of the confusion. And now we're approaching the end of our conversation. And let me ask more broadly about Ukraine in the past years. You are a very energetic and very young personality. You are very much incorporated into the global processes. What do you think when you go through, when you look through these years from Euromaidan, Revolution of Dignity from 2013, do you think that Ukraine is making progress or is just standing and stagnating? Do you have any, do you see any hope? I ask that question myself almost every day. Are we, what has changed? Are we moving forward? Are we moving backward? I think that many things have changed. Civil society is indeed finally booming. I think the fact that we have a visa-free regime with the EU is fantastic. The fact that people can easily travel, young people can travel easily is phenomenal. And the amount of cafes, initiatives, businesses that have opened in the last couple of years were extraordinary. You know, it is a great place to be. But having said that, the system is so corrupt, so complex, and is trying to fight back. So I'm seeing things that aren't making me happy, you know. But I think it's the young people, you know, you say I'm, you know, young, but, you know, the the people that are really young, like 18, and I see them, you know, in clubs and on the street and, you know, they're different. They're they are the ones who will make positive changes for Ukraine. They're indeed very different. I remember when I was 18, 20, I was probably also considering myself different, but I didn't look different. So we didn't, our generation, I'm 40, our generation didn't look so much different. And this generation indeed looks different and acts different and thinks different. But let's hope again. There is always hope. Thanks so much uh, for this conversation. We had Dana Pavlichko, director of Osnovy Publishing House, a famous Ukrainian publishing house. This is Ukraine World Podcast. Uh, stay with us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and uh, ukraineworld.org 
and our podcast Explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, and I was assisted in this podcast by sound editor Alexis Soldatov and social media manager Maria Sidenko. Stay with us. Mm-hmm.